This is episode 39 of The Milkman of St. Gaffs. This is a serialized podcast, so please start with episode 1 if you're joining us for the first time. I'd like to make some announcements today about new patrons. First, we have Garth Malachi, White Badge. Then we have Terraflub, Fly Sprayer. Then... The Multiplayer, Department of Lactic Affairs Radio Clerk. Thank you very much. And we also have another Department of Lactic Affairs Radio Clerk named Big Town Weirdo. Now, Big Town Weirdo has actually been making amazing fan art for the podcast. Uh, and I love the fan art. Uh, many people are making it. You can find uh, you can find it on Discord. Uh, but And Big Town Weirdo has been making quite a lot of really amazing stuff. So I'd like to make a special uh, thank you to uh, uh, the Weirdo. And you can find that, as I said, on Discord. You can see my uh, Twitter for an invite if you want to join the Twitter uh, uh, room. And uh, you can also find uh, uh, the fan art at Big Town Weirdo. That's the Twitter handle. And uh, so thank you again very much. And this episode is called Mother. It's time for the Milkman of St. Gav's, starring Howie the Milkman. <laughs> Those are just old mother's tales, Howie. Only a priest, an adherent of some forgotten old order like the Tertullians, would accuse the milkman of worshipping devils. The notion that men and women can be inherently good or evil is a relic of a bygone age. You've been with the organization for more than a year now. You've seen a lot of things only the most advanced milkmen ever see. Has anyone ever asked you to worship a devil? We delve into the earth, yes, but all in the name of scientific progress, as you well know. It is only through science that man's lot will be bettered, and we milkmen play a crucial role in that progress. You, Howie, are playing a vital role. I've been nothing but completely transparent with you, lad. The milkmen don't just deliver milk. In wartime, we gather intelligence because of our ability to penetrate every household in the nation. I then took the next logical step, developing a weapon to win this damnable war. This was my own initiative, and we were lucky enough to find those like you and Frank among our ranks who turned out to be uniquely qualified to help us. And as you can see with your own eyes, the weapon is proving to be very effective. Despite Frank's unfortunate accident, we were able to salvage a certain amount of phlogisterian. The crepusculator turned out a usable amount of the vapors. I brought you here, Howie, so you could see for yourself how crucial our project is to ending the war and bringing peace to the world. I hope when things settle back down at home that you'll be inspired, as Frank clearly was, to gather more phlogisterian and to help us end this war forever. With victory, the world may advance into broad, sunny hills. If we fail, we shall surely sink into the abyss of barbarism and despair. 
After his speech, Stan just looked out over the battlefield and watched all the men suffocating from the poison vapors he'd made with the phlogisterian. He wanted me to watch too, like he said, to get me excited about making more. He talked more about how scientists sometimes have to make sacrifices to make sure they were making the world a better place. And this is just like that, he said, and with this overwhelming weapon, no one would ever dare again to go to war. So that really, even though it seemed distasteful to watch, it was really just the price we had to pay for a peaceful world that was free of silly superstitions about devils and evil. On the one hand, his talk made me feel better about myself because, sometimes, in the dead of night, I thought that I might be an evil person, just like some of the people at my trial said. But now I could see that it wasn't my fault at all. On the other hand, it was really very horrible to see and hear all those boys dying out there from the gas. I knew that probably a lot of them were just like me, aimless kids who weren't quite as clever as me and couldn't figure out how to escape the draft. I think Stan also brought me there just to get me out of town while things settled down after my trial. There was a bit of a brouhaha after what happened. First of all, the old stone fellow was a pretty big deal to the religious folks, but it's not as if it was my fault that he got hit with lightning. Old rocks get struck by lightning every day. And also, the great thing about the death penalty is that they only get one bite at the tomato. If they screw it up, it's on them, and the accused is free to go his merry way, which I guess is where I was now. Up at the front, I got to meet some of the milkmen who got stuck up there delivering cream to officers. It was bad news, and I was grateful for my cushy milk route in the big city. We'd taken a train about 12 hours north, in the fancy officer's car, of course, but I could still see that war really was hell. After the battle, Stan and I went for a walk. We were victorious, of course. We looked out over the dead, and it was all very unreal to me. How these weird, waxy, contorted figures could have been men who'd brushed their teeth just a few hours ago. It was hard to understand. You love your country, don't you, Howie? Of course. Watch your step there, son. Oh, God. Taulaw is like our mother. It raised us, taught us, protected us. And now the motherland demands our service in return. And that's why we're so diligent about delivering the milk. Y yes, Howie. But sometimes the motherland demands that we give up what's most important to us. Our lives. Per perhaps, Howie. There are things more important than our lives. Our souls. Souls. That's really the purview of the church, and in any case, I don't think those superstitions do us any good. I'm talking about our loved ones. I've never told anyone this before. You and I have something in common. I understand your pain, Howie. For I, too, had a falling out with my father. I know how painful such a fall can be. In time, though, I made my way to where I am now, and you made the right decision. I've found that it's better to rule the milkman than to serve a cantankerous master. As milkmen, we bring the darkness to light and make it visible with the shining justice of our cause. So understand, Howie, that I know that what I'm about to ask you will be hard. But we cannot let our emotions get in the way of what is best. It goes without saying, Howie, that your future success with the department lies with figuring out where Frank found the phlogisterian. 
but I'm afraid you're facing another urgent matter. I didn't know what he was going to ask, but the big lead-up made me almost forget that we were strolling through a field of corpses, some of them our own fellow countrymen at that. I have reason to believe, Howie, that someone very dear to you does not have your best interest at heart. Well, we were all at the trial. I don't think that's really a surprise. No, not your mother, Howie. Stormy. Now it was my time to be confused. My vision narrowed, as what he'd just said registered in my brain. I was somehow shocked, but not surprised at the same time. What? Stormy? Think back, Howie. The trouble with the crepusculator? Pouring phlogisterian down the drain? As he spoke, it all started to make sense. Stormy, my beloved Stormy, the mother of my future son. Maybe she was working against me. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, Howie. Her father, I'm sorry to say, got what he deserved. I looked up at the greenish-brown horizon. No sign of the sun. The flies were gathering and the sickly sweet smell of carrion was all over the place. And there, on the heaps of bodies and mud, was the hound. The dog. I'd bashed his head in long ago, but there he was, staring at me. Mr. Stan, do you see that dog? Stan looked at me with a kindly look. I do. The Doberman? Yes, Howie, I see him. I don't think I heard another word he said for the rest of the walk, or on the truck ride to the train station, or for the whole train ride back. The field of bodies with that dog standing there in the gruesome beige sky, it burned into the backs of my eyeballs. It was the only thing I saw all the way back. Sometimes I was conscious of a hunger pang, a conductor asking for a ticket. I slipped in and out, watching the blur of trees out the window while some woman tried to talk to me, asking me about the front. The monotony punctuated by miasmic spells, giving my unborn son a bath and wondering where his mother was, and then he asked me, since we'd pulled the plug on the bath, where did all the water go? It spews out like rain onto the people living below. And he sat open-mouthed. You mean poopy water? And I rustled his hair. I guess so, my boy. I guess so. And then I thought about the geyser, about those stories about the boy who stuck his thumb in the geyser because there was too much water in his country about a fancy milkman's dinner with Corwin who explained that you always have to put a cork back in the wine bottle or it would attract vermin. We stopped at some tree-filled place where one girl with an umbrella got on. And then I was in downtown Mingsbite, but it was like the first time I'd arrived at this strange city. I wandered hungry up and down the wharf wondering if the coins in my pocket would do any good. I knew I just didn't want to go home after the revelation on the battlefield, but part of me wanted to continue with the charade that I didn't know what was going on. Until I was sitting on a bench, under an awning, with him. Like I dropped right into the middle of everything. Oh, I missed the first ferry. Stayed out a bit late. You know, big city lights, you know. And 
Now I'm here until the next ferry comes at five. No, the bones have gone out with us too. Perhaps the glow only lasts so long. Stormy? No, she always felt responsible for what happened to her poor father. I've tried to tell her it's not your fault, not your fault, and you, Howie, you look so guilty up there on that wicker chair, and Howie, listen, my son, I've known you over a year now, and you're not the straightest arrow in my flock, so to speak, but I heard everything everyone said up there, and Howie, I don't know what happened back then, but it wasn't your fault either. Kids never believe it, and you're just a kid, Howie. Maybe you'll never believe me. That's just about typical, but try to hear me, son. It's not your fault. Murder. You don't have it in you. Then I remembered Granard's son had opened up a fish shack down the way. We went, we bought fish sandwiches, and he and I sat there like old buddies waiting for his ferry, munching away. And after that, I felt a little bit less alone, a bit more on the ground. Father Whelan really was a great guy, I thought, as I smoked my post-fish sandwich pipe and watched his ship get smaller and smaller. I was feeling pretty good on my walk home, until I remembered. Stormy. What was I going to do about Stormy? Howie, she was here again. She dropped off one of those awful pies. And I wondered, was this all a ploy, constantly pitting me against others? My mother? Yes, she freaks me out. Why, just because she dropped off a pie? Then her attention went right to me, with a look that said, How could you defend that creepy old witch? Howie, are you okay? And then I realized how exhausted I was, so I sort of buckled and grabbed the stair rail for support. The next thing, I was in bed sipping orange juice and my dear Stormy was looking so relieved. Then I remembered Stan's words. But there she was, smiling at me now. How is it possible? How could she feel like that about me? She could have gotten any milkman at the station. Why me? The orange juice just wasn't cutting it. Is there any of that pie left? What pie? My mom's pie. I threw it out, Howie. I got mad. It's pie. We're not rich enough to throw out pie, no matter where it comes from. My mom's just trying probably to help us out. Stormy looked like I'd just kicked her in the head and she stormed out, leaving me there, exhausted and sipping my orange juice, thinking, thinking. Could everything I thought about Stormy be wrong? She's been so good to me, but Stan was someone I trusted. My future was in his hands, although he did eat Frank right in front of me. I felt the black seeds of doubt and distrust blossoming in the pit of my stomach and stretching out to every extremity, making me shaky and ill. I heard her putting on her raincoat. Going to work, she shouted in a not-so-friendly way. I just lay there, watching the rain hitting the roof across the road, remembering lying in Stormy's bed when I was hurt, driving up to the cottage and laughing while Florsham lay in the back. I'd known Stormy so long now. If she'd been up to no good, I would have noticed. She never asked me any details about anything. The bottle of phlogisterian? I could have written a note or something like Stormy said, and then she wouldn't have poured it out, probably. So that was a bit my fault, too. 
And when I stopped to think about it, the problems with the crepusculator were also partly my fault. And how could Stormy possibly blame me for what happened to her father after I'd explained what had happened to him? And then all the puzzle pieces came crashing down around me. Stan was just reading too much into things. He was wrong about Stormy. On the other hand, I'd need proof in order to get Stan to realize he was wrong. And maybe he wasn't wrong. I was sure that if I could find the phlogisterium and make him see that Stormy wasn't a subversive, I could get the job in the White Tower downtown and still have Stormy by my side. I didn't have to give up all my dreams. But first things first, if I was going to prove Stormy's loyalty and make sure she wasn't a baddie, I'd have to give her some kind of test, something that would be convincing. Maybe I could leave some secret milkmen blueprints. I'd leave them on the table and see if she took them. And then I'd make sure another milkman or two was on the case. We'd follow her to her handlers if she was guilty, which of course she wasn't. And if she didn't even care about the documents? Wait a second, documents? Then I remembered I'd seen something. A letter in code. I'd thrown it out, but had there been others? Mostly Stormy got the mail. My heart started pounding. So maybe it was true after all. She was receiving secret messages. I swallowed hard. Well, I determined, all the more reason to conduct the experiment. Downstairs, I glanced at the empty pie plate. Maybe I'd been wrong about her, too. After all, she'd come all the way here just to offer us a pie. She just wanted to feed and take care of her son. Why was Stormy so against my mother? Divide people from everyone around them and conquer, isn't that what they say? After washing up the plate and heading out the door, I pondered the number of miscommunications that might befall a man in his lifetime. I was certain I'd had my share by now. It was time to start sorting them out. Somehow, it was about midnight when I got to my mom's house. I knocked and knocked, but she never answered. The rain had started to stop and moonbeams were shining down. I just dropped the plate on the doorstep and walked away. Then there was a sound of a door opening. I thought I'd turn around to my mother's forgiving arms, but I just caught the quickest glimpse of the plate disappearing behind the closing door. The days just went on for a while, me trying to sort everything out in my head, attempting to locate authentic blueprints to tempt Stormy, deciding when next I'd go to see my mother again. I knew it was my duty to make her happy. They'd told me so at the trial. Stormy kept her cool and acted like everything was fine. For nearly the first time in my life, I was so confused about things that I didn't know what to do or what to believe. Monday, I made my rounds as fast as a guy could. I wanted to leave a little extra time so that I could drop off a couple bottles of cream at my mother's place before Dwyer noticed I was late. I knocked. I heard shuffling inside. The door cracked open. I have nothing to say to you. She grabbed the bottles and slammed the door. Mom, can't we talk? I guess she was pretty upset by everything that had happened, but I was her son. She'd forgive me if I kept persisting. I knew it in my heart. But it was still a bit annoying that she just took the milk, and Dwyer noticed I was short and made me pay for it on top of everything else. I went home and Stormy wasn't there, which was super irritating because I wanted to talk to her, but she was at her job. I decided to just go for a walk. And by the by, I ended up at the market where Stormy worked. 
It was kind of busy, but I just stood beside her at the cash register so we could talk a little. This really isn't the time, Howie. I know, but how could she just shut the door in my face? Why do you care? She was awful to you, and you're going to get me in trouble. She didn't want to listen to a thing I said, even though it was really important to me, so I just stormed out and left her there. And then, after she got home, and the whole time she was cooking dinner, I gave her the silent treatment. Needless to say, it was a cold and chilly dinner. So when it's about me and my mother, there's no time to talk, but I have to listen to you about your dad all the time. She was on the verge of tears, probably racked with guilt because of the point I'd scored. And then she did start crying. I just got the hell out of there. Out on the street, it was brisk with the fall. The chill pulled me back inside myself. Wasn't there even one place I could go where people cared about me and understood me? I thought about heading to the East End to find Scar and maybe find out what those pills were all about, or maybe the old birthday pub I remembered so well. But I just drifted this way and that. Maybe everyone was right. Maybe the root of all my troubles was that I'd forsaken the one person I knew I should be able to count on forever and always. I felt engulfed by the kind of delirium that only comes from being so torn up inside that nothing seems real anymore. And the only place you can turn is the place your legs carry you in the early hours in the dead of winter, when you might even be asleep, but you feel your frozen pants against your legs that carry you zigzagging back to the old familiar door. And you knock before realizing, this is real. What are you doing here? I have to talk to you, Mom. We can't leave things like this. I might have pushed my way in, but she opened the door anyways. We have to fix this. After what you did? What did I do? Did you see any of that so-called circumstantial evidence? Did you? She just stared in my direction without really looking at me. Maybe scared, probably full of hate. You're my mom. You really believe I could do that to Dad? Nothing. She didn't say anything. Maybe I was being too blunt. A roundabout way might be best. You know, I'm going to get a big promotion soon. She didn't say a goddamn thing. She inched towards her chair by the window, and even though you couldn't see outside because it was dark out and there was just a reflection of the inside on the window, she turned and stared out there, and slowly, inexorably, she took out a cigarette and lit it. She breathed it all in and breathed it all out, like this was how she was exercising her demons. But there were no demons. There was only me. You're just going to sit there and say nothing? For some reason, I remembered all of a sudden McMurtle lying there in his peckerhead coma, and his finger twitched and Stormy got all excited because she thought he was coming back to life, but then he just stayed there doing nothing like some kind of idiot. And there was my mom. If I waited here forever, would she ever say anything? Then I saw something I'd never unsee for the rest of my existence. I turned for some reason, and there they were. Shoved behind the trash bin were my milkman boots. To think this woman had raised me up, feeding me and everything, packing lunch for me at school so I wouldn't be hungry, even though I threw out the old bananas because they were black and bruised and awful. And someone, somewhere, made those boots, hoping some milkman would have a successful career delivering milk to young boys and girls with bright futures ahead of them. And now, as sordid as could be, there they were, stolen and useless. 
And then I knew that my mother had stolen my boots. My consciousness swam in blurriness. She saw that I saw and said nothing, just turned back out the window and took another long drag. She didn't seem to care about what was coming one way or the other. Neck twisting, fists clenching. I dragged myself out of there before I did something I might regret. The steam was still building up in my brain, though. And against all my defenses, pinpricks of the truth came stabbing in at me. I can tell you, with the hindsight of all of those years behind me, it's hard to believe the truth even when it punches you right in the nose. I found some solace in a skinny little puppy that wandered down beneath the sidewalks. It was dark down there, and I felt that someone might come out of the shadows and knife me in the back at any moment. At least it wasn't raining underground. I followed the little guy. Maybe I'd find him something to eat. Maybe take care of him. I almost caught up, but the tunnel widened out. The puppy ran, and I followed him out onto the beach. The iron-gray sky and the inky water. It was cold, and I knew this was some northern climb. Not the Arctic, but still pretty cold. The puppy went straight and fast, and I followed him all the way to the rotting carcass of a huge whale, the tide just ebbing out. The puppy started munching, and for some reason I felt very sad. There, there, Howie. I turned, and there, leaning on his umbrella, was the magician. You! Oh, come now, Howie. You know very well that I never went anywhere. I turned back to the puppy and the whale. Oh dear, still having trouble with that one decent act, are we? I felt the blood starting to boil in my head. I'm sure it's all just a misunderstanding. <laughs> I just kept looking at that little dog ripping bits of flesh off the whale, getting madder and madder. I stormed past the magician, just about knocking his stinking self over. The evening's events kept turning over and over again in my head. I'd tried to do the right thing, but I wouldn't be blamed for anything that happened now. After all of this, back on the street, I saw the silhouette of the hound under an electric streetlight. I knew where he was leading me, and I didn't even care anymore. I was going home, and nothing was going to stop me. I knew the door would be locked. I just smashed it down. The hound ran in, right into the kitchen. He stood there, ears up, ready to jump. And she just sat there, smoking in that stinking room, looking my way without seeing me, not seeming to care, maybe trembling a bit. It was going to happen just like it did before. Not my fault. I was shaking. Then some small voice in my head. Stormy would have to clean my uniform after. Later, I imagined her just sitting there and looking out the window and turning grayer and smokier as the years rolled past. The sun would go up and down, the seasons would change, and she'd slowly but surely become a hollow shell, staring out the window as the cigarettes burned down between her fingers, those grinding dark thoughts just frozen there forever in her eyes. At least I walked home with a clean uniform. 